This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and fpcgolfport on YouTube. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Well, today is New Year's Day, and it's kind of hard to believe that 2023 is already here, I think. But with every new year, we all have the opportunity to kind of turn over a new page, you know, along with all of the fireworks, which my dog hated last night. So if you're anywhere near my apartment, it was your fault that he was shaking in the bathroom. But anyway, with all the fireworks, the moon pie drops, the collard greens, comes everyone's favorite tradition, which is New Year's resolutions. And I will say I have a love and hate relationship with these resolutions. I worked for several years at a gym at the local YMCA in New Orleans. And so I got to see firsthand every year all of the very well-meaning people come and sign up and give us their money and plan to get everything together, hit the gym, and only to make it a few weeks in. And of course, that's not all of them. Some of them did a great job and continued on in the new year. It was that you know beginning that kicked it off and to be fair, I could probably hit the gym a little more this year and eat a little healthier. But, you know, it was disappointing to see people who had such good intentions fizzle out. But there's also a side of me that really likes the idea of resolutions, of, of taking an inventory of our lives, of committing ourselves to make positive changes. So wherever you are, whether you're somebody that you make resolutions every year, if there's something you don't even want to get near to, I do hope and desire that you would commit and devote yourself to becoming more like Jesus this year and that we would think about how we can run that race that God has for us in 2023 well and really the race that He has for us for the rest of our lives. So that end, we're going to consider a passage this morning from the book of Hebrews this Lord's Day. Now, over the past year, I've done a lot of study in Hebrews and it's really become one of my favorite books the Bible. I think when we see the author, how he so clearly shows that Jesus is, is superior over everything in the Old Testament, over every type, over every shadow, but we see so much encouragement there. And it's a place where I go for spiritual encouragement. Now, you may remember that the book of Hebrews was written to a group of predominantly Jewish Christians, some who were considering going back to Judaism because they were facing some really difficult times. They were facing opposition even possibly persecution. And the main message that the author says over and over throughout the book is don't turn back. Trust in Jesus. He's better than anything that you came from. So continue. Stay steadfast. He's the fulfillment of everything that was promised and your hope is found in Him. And if they would have left Jesus, if they would have went back to Judaism, if they would have went back to their old ways, they would have nothing but empty promises. Now in chapter 11, the author recalls the faith of the Old Testament believers. And that passage is commonly called the Hall of Faith. And we see how God used men like Abraham and Moses and even the likes of Gideon and Samson and David, not because they were so great and so amazing, but because they had faith in God. In fact, some of those people were quite imperfect people and people that were surprised to see in there. But the point is that they trusted in God and God was able to use them. So we're going to pick up actually at the end of chapter 11, starting with verse 39. Hebrews 11, verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Your goodness to us. Father, we thank You for Jesus and all that He has done. And we thank You for Your Word. Lord, help us to understand it this morning. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, in our text, the author gives us instructions and really encouragement about how to run the race, this race that we call the Christian life and that we're on. And in the New Testament, we find several examples, several metaphors of ways of illustrating truths of the faith. We think about Jesus who used vivid parables that have stuck in our minds. We think about the church, which is compared to the body of Christ or a bride. In the epistles, a common metaphor we see is one of athletic metaphors, specifically those about running the race of faith. For instance, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul said this in verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Now, the reality is that each of us are in a race. Now, thankfully for me, this is not a foot race, because I would not make it very far. I really don't run unless somebody is chasing me. But we are all in this race of faith. And it's actually a race much more difficult, much more important even than a sprint or a marathon. And in this passage, the author provides what I think we see is four clear instructions about how to run this race of faith. So let's begin by looking to the first section of verse 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We see here that our text is really an exhortation that follows from chapter 11. That's why it starts with therefore. So it links it together. And the first thing we must do is consider the faith of those who went before us. And this enabled us to run the race with encouragement. I think we see that we're encouraged in two ways. First, we're encouraged by the witness of other believers who have completed the race. And that's pretty simple, isn't it? We we see that they have done it, that they were faithful, that they went through, they made it, and we can do it as well. Again, the cloud of witnesses detailed in chapter 11 has many what we would call heroes of the Old Testament. And they all trusted in Jesus by faith. Some of them say most of them suffered, but they persevered by faith. Now, the author calls them a cloud, a cloud of witnesses, which really means that there were a lot of them, more even than what was written about in chapter 11. You think about how on a a dark, stormy day, the cloud blocks out the sun, and the sun's pretty bright, right? Or how a fog can be so dense that you can't even see the sidewalk when you're walking. If any of you were driving last night, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You couldn't see the car in front of you. Now this cloud of witnesses, is the idea is it's that numerous. It's These men and women were models of faith and faithfulness as those who ran the race 
although they were imperfect, they ran the race well. Now sometimes we can feel that we're the first ones to face certain trials, certain hardships, experience certain things. I mean, we live in a new age. We live in a technological age with new challenges and unique things. But the truth is that there really isn't anything new and there's nothing new under the sun. Right? The same sins, the same struggles that we face have confronted believers for a millennium, since the beginning of time. And we aren't the first ones to walk out the Christian life. Now, the picture painted by the verse is that we are running a race really in front of this great crowd, a stadium full of people who have already completed the race. Now, they aren't our rivals, but they're encouraging us. They're cheering us on to finish well. It's like we're going with home field advantage. Now, if you're a sports fan, you know a little bit about home field advantage. I remember how when I played football, it was always great to play in front of your home crowd. Because when you went to other fields, other teams in front of their field, they could be really loud. That kind of makes it hard to hear. You'd be so loud, you couldn't hear the plays coming in, you couldn't hear when the ball was supposed to be hiked to start the play. In college football, some stadiums are notorious for being loud and difficult to play in front of. One that's pretty aptly named is not too far down the road is Death Valley and Baton Rouge. We can think of lots of different stadiums that are known for being loud and being at a disadvantage if you play there as the opposing team. Now, while we're not necessarily on home turf, right? we're in a sense aliens and strangers on this world, we are running with the encouragement of a great crowd, of those who went before us. And they show us that faith will carry you safely through. That you may be called to suffer. And all the different experiences that you may go through, that they've actually went through it and they can encourage us. We receive similar encouragements from our fellow friends, from family, from church members today, don't we? When we watch God strengthen and, and use them, watch them walk through very difficult seasons of life, we know that God sustained them and that God can sustain us as well. Sometimes the Lord takes us through suffering ourselves in order to encourage others when they go through similar suffering. I've been encouraged by many people in my life, and it usually wasn't most by those who had everything going right and together. It's those who are facing the most difficult and trying times, but continued the course who had faith, who trusted in Jesus. And it was there's really nothing like seeing someone who is fully reliant on Christ all the way to the end, even in the most difficult situations. I can think recently of visiting and seeing men like Mike Ganeshow and Tom Branham who ran their race as well, even to the very end until God called them home, but they had a trust and an assurance in Christ. We should also run with encouragement because... We have something a lot better than these Old Testament saints did. We see in the conclusion of chapter 11 that God used them in amazing ways, but that they were looking forward to our day, to the day when this was written to the original audience, but also to us, to our day. They lived in the time of promise. They lived in the time of shadow, but we live in a time of fulfillment. They longed for the coming of the promised Messiah, but the reality is now He has come. And while we share in the same faith as them, where we're in the same covenant of grace as these Old Testament saints, we now have the full light of the Gospel with all its blessings. 
So if we have the fulfillment that they were looking for, if they would want to be in our place, if they were looking forward to our day, we too persevere in faith. We can remain steadfast like they did because we actually have something much better. The next instruction in verse 1 says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, if you were planning on running a marathon tomorrow, what would you show up in? Would you put on your best suit and tie? Would you put on your best dress? Maybe a suit of armor or something like that? No. Would you wear full football pads? You can't run very fast in that. No. You would probably put on some lightweight clothes. You'd put on some running shoes. And you would pray that you don't die. I don't know if any of you are marathon runners, but from my understanding, they care a lot about the weight of their clothes even to the ounces and the grams of their shoes and things like that and trying to shed as much weight as possible. They want to be as light as possible because they have to go a long way and they don't want to be slowed down or hindered. Now, in Paul's day, they didn't exactly run the marathon race, but they had distance races. And for those days when they ran those races, the runners, they would take off their heavy tunics. They would shed any unnecessary weight so that they could run as quick as possible. And the analogy here, I think, is pretty clear. In this race of faith, we too should cast off any unnecessary weights, any sins, if we want to run our race well. These weights, they hinder us, they slow us down in our walk with Christ. These things, these weights, they're not necessarily sinful things. The weights aren't, but they take our eyes off of Jesus. The weights are the distractions and the cares of the world. And you know, we can have, I have hobbies. We can have hobbies. We can have things we can enjoy, get good gifts we can receive for God's glory. But we can't let those things become central, become too much of a good thing in a sense. We take all of our time, take up too much devotion, and it actually starts to hinder our walk with Christ. So I think it's very clear if there's things in our life which are hindering our walk, they have to go away or put into a place of moderation. Sin, of course, slows us down, doesn't it? And, and it clings very close. It's, it's always around the corner waiting to pounce. You know, even when you think you've, you've really conquered this certain sin, it's right there waiting for you to slip up. Now, the list here could be very lengthy, but I think many of us know what sins are hindering our walk. And, and the command here is to cast it off. Don't let it hang around any longer. Don't try to put it in a box and just kind of keep it, okay, I'm just going to allow this level of sin. No, it's completely throw it away, get it out. Sin to the Christian should be like oil and water. Although that's not always our experience, is it? Of course, running a race or trying to do the Christian life while in sin is like carrying a 25-pound weight or 50-pound weight trying to run a marathon. No one's going to do that unless you're really wild and trying to train. But no one is going to do that if they're running for speed, right? And of course, we know that sin sticks around. It's difficult to get away from. Even we can think of Paul, we can think of the cloud of witnesses. There is a struggle. There is even a fight for sin. Of course, it's a different metaphor, but we fight against sin and we run the race. In verse 15, the author tells us to guard against the root of bitterness. And this is actually an allusion back to Deuteronomy chapter 29. And it refers to one who has a a certain complacency, a stubbornness about sin. 
I'm really just going to leave it where it's at. I've broken God's covenant. I don't care. But then they say to themselves, I'll be fine. I'll be safe. It's not that big of a deal. But make no mistake about it. The call to follow Christ, the call to follow Jesus, is also a call to die to yourself and your sin and to pick up your cross daily. We live in a day and age when even the mention of the world's sin is kind of frowned upon. It's not just a normal discussion. It won't get you a lot of likes. The noses are shot up at the supposed holier-than-thou preachers who call for sinners to repent. But the sad reality is that the idea of, of growing in holiness, of putting to death our sins, is really a foreign concept to many American Christians. For many people, they could honestly, if they took a look, they would say a runner cares more about the weight of his shoes than they actually care about holiness and the weight of their sin. Of course, a runner, he measures the ounces of his shoes, he ties them with the perfect lot knot, he trains every day. But do we take the same amount of care and the same amount of diligence to holiness? Or are you more like the brood of bitterness who doesn't really care? Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, we don't leave these sins around. We put them to death. This is known, it's got a fancy word for it, but it's known as mortification or the killing of sin. And I know that I quote this too much, but it's like my favorite quote. John Owen, he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And oh, I wish we would take that more seriously. Now to be perfectly clear, this is not a message of try harder or self-help now that we've entered into the new year that you can do this all by yourself because it's certainly not. It's only through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit that we can make even the smallest advancements in holiness in this life. Now let's consider the remainder of verse 1. It says, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now here, very plainly, we learn that we must run the race that God has ordained for us. That is the race that is set before us. Why would we, many of us, probably we'd like to mark out our own path. We'd like to, to sit down at the beginning of the year and say, okay, in February, I'm going to have a little bit of a trouble here. It's going to be very good. There might be a trial happen in June. But by and large, it's going to be a very easy year. We don't get to do that, do we? It is God who plans our days. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So before our very beginning of days, God knew every single one of ours. And while selfishly, and probably me included, we, we would want to be in charge of our lives, we really don't know what's best for us, do we? We don't know what challenges, what pains, or even the discipline that we need from God to be conformed into the image of Christ. But our Father, He knows. He knows us. He loves us. And He's the one who actually marks out every challenge, everything that's going to happen. Nothing happens by chance. Now in some churches this morning, and I've heard them before, the preacher will get up and say, you know, 2023, it's going to be the year of abundance. It's going to be the year of blessing. There are no more challenges. 
course, you may have to give me a little money beside the point, but you know, it is going to be a great, perfect, wonderful year. And we kind of want to hear that. Right? We want to know this is going to be the best year that I've ever had. But we don't actually know that. In fact, you know, those same people probably said the same thing before 2020, and it didn't really turn out that well. But anyway, 2023, it very well may be your year. Right? All that hard work that you've been putting in, that you've been going continually for years, it may finally pay off in a very big way. And if that happens, I'll rejoice with you. I will rejoice, and that would be wonderful. But what if? What if 2023 is actually going to be your most challenging year? Does that mean that God doesn't love you? He didn't bless me the way I wanted Him to bless me? Well, no, not even close. If you're in Christ, God loves you more than you can even imagine. Begin to imagine. The depth of His love is seen in His utter willingness to send His only Son to the cross. To send the one of ultimate worth to be sacrificed for you. So for all of us, we can say if we're in Christ at the cross, we can know God's love for us. And if He loves us that much, He'll even let us go through all the things that we need to. He'll let us all the discipline, all the challenges. He'll let us go through those because He's a loving Father. He knows exactly what we need. Sometimes we, we trick ourselves. We fool ourselves into thinking God is keeping something from me. There's a carrot on a stick out in front. But it's, it's not like that at all. He's given us more blessings, more abundance, more riches than we can even begin to imagine. So whatever you face, whatever your rates may be this year, know that it is, and once it is definitely determined by the sovereign will of our good Father, but He has planned out the race set for you. That really helps us when the challenges do come. We know that we still have a good Father. The author tells us to run that race, that race that God has ordained with endurance. To run it with patience and fortitude. I really like that word, fortitude. Fortitude is having strong will in the face of pain or danger. Now, again, we're going athletics, so I can think of several athletes who have who've gone down in history for their fortitude. I can think of Kerry Strug, who landed a vault dismount and an injured ankle in the Olympics. I can think of Michael Jordan. He had the flu in 1997 in the finals, and he scored like 38 points. Probably every game that Brett Favre ever played with some fortitude. He like he beat Alabama after having 30 inches of intestines removed. He had broken thumbs, concussions, ankles, all of that. Now I'm not saying we should emulate these people, okay? But they certainly had a certain amount of fortitude. And you know, this is the type of endurance that we need because challenges are coming. Difficulties are going to arise. We wouldn't be told and commanded to have fortitude, have endurance, if it wasn't going to take some of it. One of the biggest lies that gets told so often is that once you become a Christian, life is just going to be a breeze. Life is just going to get so much easier. And being a Christian has its benefits. Let me tell you, it is worth it, but it does have costs. You know, marathons, they're hard, but the Christian life is much harder. Now, for instance, before I was a believer, you know, sin, it's like, well, you know, it's, it's there, it's this, and I don't really, really care, or you really think about it. And then you become a believer, you've had your sins forgiven, but then you realize that you're in this fight for holiness, to put to death sin, to kill the sin, you're in a battle every day. The author calls it a race because it's, it's nothing more than it's, it's a spiritual battle. 
We need endurance. In chapter 10, verse 36 of Hebrews, the author says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, it, it really doesn't matter how you start in this Christian life if you're not going to finish, if you don't persevere, if you turn back. Now, we can't shrink away from Jesus. We can't shrink back or turn away. We must endure. Maybe you know someone, I know a few, who at one time claimed to be in Christ, to have a relationship with Christ, to really do some great things, but then they fizzled out. Maybe it was the cares of the world, maybe it was the challenges, whatever it may be, they became enamored with something else other than Jesus and they just fell away. And all throughout this book, the author warns us that there's no hope outside of Christ. So run with endurance. Don't be like that person who turns back. And tells us just how to run with endurance, starting in verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So how do we endure? How do we persevere? Well, we run the race by looking to Jesus. And while the cloud of witnesses encourages us, really our main focus isn't on the cloud at all. It's on Jesus. When we hear the word looking, we think, well, you know, I looked over here, I looked over there. It's a casual glance, but that's not what the word really means here. It's to direct one's attention without distraction. We might say to fix one's eyes on someone. To fix one's eyes. Runners in a race, they to their guide. Right? If you don't know where to turn, you'll never make it to the end. So they fix their eyes on their leader, on their guide, so that they can run the race. They mark out all the distractions so they know where to turn, so they can make it to the finish line. So does the Christian. They fix his or her eyes singly on Jesus. We must look away from the different distractions of the world. There's lots going on. There's so much fighting for our attention and to look to Jesus. Because He's the only one who can bring us through. He's the only one who can make it. We can make it to the end. We look to Jesus who is called the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So first, He's called the founder or the author of our faith. Everything begins with Jesus. Our hope and our salvation, it rests upon the finished work of Christ. And I think we could easily say our faith, it rises and it falls all on Jesus. His perfect life, his sacrificial death, His resurrection, His ascension, all of our faith is founded on the work of Christ. It all hangs upon Jesus. And we know that there's no way to the Father except through Him. Jesus is also called the perfecter or the completer of our faith. So not only does He begin our faith, but He brings it to a conclusion. He's the finisher. For His church, Jesus completed all the work that is necessary for salvation. He gives them new life and He brings them home into eternal worship in God's presence. That means that from the moment of first belief all the way to glory, faith is all of Christ. He's the Savior. He's the assister. He's the strengthener. He is all of those things. On the race of faith, John Calvin said, Christ also is not only the umpire, but also extends His hand to us and supplies us with the strength and energy. In short, He prepares and fits us to enter on the course and by His power 
leads us on to the end of the race. So He starts us all the way through, carries us on. Now it's really vital for us to recognize Christ's centrality here because any progress that we make in the Christian life isn't ours. It's through Christ. It's the work of Christ. If we could just motivate ourselves to holiness in 2023, that would be great. But it's not at all the way that it works. We must go to Jesus. And we know motivation is not necessarily a bad thing. But motivation doesn't always last all that long. Just ask all the people at the YMCA who went to the gym for three weeks, right? Motivation can falter once things get tough or we get discouraged or life gets in the way. But we need Christ as He is the perfecter, the completer of our faith. Well, since He's the founder, since He's the perfecter of our faith, how do we do this? It says fix our eyes on Jesus. And I think we would, most of us would agree that's a good thing. I want to fix my eyes on Jesus. But what does that really look like? I mean, what's at least one way I can do that? It sounds kind of ethereal. Well, one way is to prioritize what we'd call the ordinary means of grace, which is where God communicates to us the benefits of redemption. These ordinances include the Word, the reading and preaching of the Word, prayer, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. If you want to focus on Jesus and experience true spiritual growth this year, I guarantee you there's nothing that could be as beneficial as devoting yourself to worshiping with the body on the Lord's Day. Where Christ's Word is read and preached, His sacraments are administered, prayers are offered, and His saints are gathered. There really is nothing that can take the place of Lord's Day worship at what we call an ordinary means of grace-based church. You know, far too often I hear from people that say, well, you know, I really, I just feel far from God. I feel like I'm struggling in certain things. And that could be very legitimate. But I also hear that from people more often than not and saying, well, I'm really neglecting the Lord's Day worship. I'm neglecting meeting God in the Word and in prayer. And so I'm not going to the places where God has said that He will meet me. Even when we think about this morning as we take from the Lord's Supper, we take communion. We are looking to Christ. Looking and receiving all that He has offered to us. So let us look to Christ this year. Another way we fix our eyes on Jesus is in private and family worship. We should devote ourselves to the study of God's Word to pray. To pray in private, by yourself, to pray with your family. Most of us here would say that the Bible is God's Word, that this is the inerrant Word of God. But probably not the same amount of us would say, yes, that is God's Word, so I'm going to take time to study it and to read it and devote ourselves to it. Really, the only logical conclusion is that if it is God's Word, I should spend more time studying and hearing from Him. This year is the time where a lot of people are starting new devotions, new Bible reading plans, studies. Those are good if you want to jump in one of those. Uh, you don't have to read the whole Bible in a year. There's lots of different ways. I just want you to read God's Word. Devote yourself to studying God's Word. I mean, really, what better time than now to develop godly habits, to commit ourselves to public and private worship of God. Well, let's take up now the remainder of our text. The second half of verse 2 reads, "...who for the joy..." that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice that we're encouraged here to look to the example and to the authority of Jesus. 
Now, I think it would be probably the understatement of the century, an understatement of millennia, right? To say that Jesus' life on earth was not easy. He left His heavenly throne. He faced rejection, humiliation, suffering, and He endured all of this, even the suffering and humiliation of the cross, by looking to the joy that was set before Him. What is that joy set before Him? Oh, it was the salvation of His church to the exaltation and the glory that awaited Him, the glories in heaven. And it was not a joy for Jesus to hang on a cross. It was not a joy to die on a Roman cross or to take upon Himself the sins of the world. There's so much suffering. But see, the result was worth it. He cared more about the will of God, even in the shame of men. Isaiah 53.11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Psalm 16.11 says, You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And see, that's what Christ was looking to when He died for our sins. Jesus suffered, and really we too should expect to suffer. Not in the same way, but that is the normal Christian experience. We should, as believers, expect hardships, suffering. And whenever we find ourselves, we should consider Jesus because no one has went through what Jesus has went through. We can have some very tough and difficult situations, but I promise you, Jesus has went through more. Hebrews 12.3 tells us this, Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So when things are difficult, when we face suffering, it says consider Jesus. Consider all that He went through. When you suffer, Jesus can identify with you. He has endured more. He has remained faithful. But see, just like Jesus, there's also a joy that awaits us. There's a crown of life for those who persevere under trial. Christians, in some ways, it's not easy, but we also have the best of both worlds. We do have true joy in this life, but we have ultimate joy in eternity where we'll no longer see Jesus through a glass dimly, but face to face. So brothers and sisters, it is worth it to follow Jesus. So don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Finally, the author he tells us, he prompts us, he says, look to the authority of Jesus. He reminds us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, which is this place of authority. He endured suffering. He's exchanged His crown of thorns, His humiliation for a seat at His Father's right hand. His name is the name that is above every name. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. So remember that Jesus is King right here in 2023, just as He was in 2022 just as He will be forever, no matter what challenges we face, Jesus is Lord. So let us run our race well. We know who our King is. We know all that He's done for us. He's the author. He is the perfecter. Philippians 3.13-14 Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Let that be our hope and our prayer this year. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 10 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.